On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, milk production, a major issue for the dairy industry. What supply chains will look like, how will buyers secure milk in the future and what we're seeing already is there's a whole lot of fragmentation like retailers like Coles reaching right back to the farm um, and paying farmers direct and having those direct relationships to, to make those supplies secure. And police investigate a major theft of sheep. Uh, he last counted them in October when he drenched them. He's in a mob of 1,800 and then has got them in again in January to shear them and discovered that of his 1,800, he's 700 down. Um, they were in a 1,200 acre paddock. It was pretty rough. Pretty rough is an understatement. That's a lot of missing sheep, some 700. That story coming up. And, of course, day two of the National Dairy Conference from Rest Points in Hobart. We'll cross to Meg Powell in the second half of the program. And Meg will have several guests to talk to. Also coming up today, details of the big Tasmanian wool sale this week in Melbourne. And one of the most successful wool breeders in the state selling off the farm. We'll talk to him as well. Richard Bailey will be here to detail yesterday's Powerena store cattle sale. It will check the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936. That number 0438 922 936. First up, day two of the Australian Dairy Conference underway in Hobart today. And apart from big discussion points like Farmgate milk prices, labour and input costs, a major challenge for the industry is how to increase milk production. Dairy analyst from Fresh Agenda, Joe Bills, is one of the speakers at the conference predicting how the dairy industry in Australia may look 10 years down the track. Joe Bills told reporter Fiona Breen, despite all the challenges ahead, now is a good time for Australian dairy farmers. It is actually a pretty good time, Fiona. We've had three seasons of pretty good milk price and pretty good seasonal conditions for most of southeastern Australia. Um, But we're not really seeing farmers being able to respond in terms of growing their milk production. So that's a big concern for, for processors in particular. Now, what are those figures in terms of milk production and how far have they gone down in Australia? Well, over the last two decades, we peaked at 11.2 billion uh, litres in 2001, and we're currently at about 8.5 billion litres. Wow. So it's a big drop. It is a big drop. Uh, and, and in fact, over most of that journey, Tasmania has been the only region that's been growing. Um, But mainland Australia is really letting down the team. What's going on here? Well, there's a lot of factors, I think, for the last three years. Labor's been a big factor for farmers. Uh, As everyone knows, labor is really scarce in Australia. And if you're in regional Australia and you're also on a dairy farm where you have to get up in the morning and milk and uh, do a few other hard jobs, it's really hard to compete for that labour, especially over the last couple of years without backpackers in the country. So are farmers getting out simply because it's getting a bit hard? Well, some of them are getting out because it's actually so good. It's a good time to to actually realise the value of your asset. And if you're an older farmer, shall we say, and you don't have a success session plan within your family, then it's a pretty good time to actually sell because we've seen um, land values in dairying regions rising over the last couple of years between 5 and, and 10% compound average growth rates. Um, everything's looking green and lovely. So for a lot of people, it's, it's time to exit. And that's not necessarily a sad story for them personally, 
But in aggregate, it's tough for the industry because those land values also keep a lot of new entrants, potential new entrants out of the industry. Well, will that flatten out? Will will farmers stop getting out of that dairy industry? Will uh, dairy production come back up? Look, we really hope so. There's certainly demand for for dairy products globally and in particular Australian dairy products. Um, We do have to to tackle these issues around the availability of labour and some of the other aspects that have probably been holding milk production back over the last couple of years, like really strong beef prices. As beef prices ease a bit and that's not such um, an attractive proposition, we'll hopefully see a bit more of a build-up in, in the dairy herd. So more attractive to uh, sell, a, sell a, a side of beef or a steak than a glass of milk? Yeah, it has been over the, the last couple of years. Beef prices have been excellent and obviously it's a lot uh, less labour-intensive a production system compared to, to dairy. So, you know, for a lot of people that don't have the the availability of labour that they'd like uh, or want to pull back a little bit, beef has been a pretty good option over the last few years. But it's not good for the consumer or Australia's production overall. Is it going to affect the market? The retail market, like are consumers actually going to feel this? Yeah, well, I mean, we've we've seen fairly strong price increases over the last 12 months for dairy products, as with all products, and that's reflecting the broad-based inflation that we're facing uh, in Australia as elsewhere in the world. Um, and a few of the retailers have, Coles in particular, have made the decision that they want their private label products cheese in particular, to be Australian-made. And they're uh, sending out a signal to farmers that they want to lock in prices for another three years. So security of milk supply is absolutely paramount at the moment. So there's a lot of scrambling for the, the available milk. The domestic market will always be supplied first, um, particularly for fresh milk. But for some of those other products, uh, we'll be importing in the next few years. We'll be importing some more cheeses perhaps and other things. What oh, sort yeah. of things do you we, mean? We already import quite a bit of cheese, um, but we, we we will be importing more lower value cheese, like the mozzarella cheese that you might get on your pizza. And some of the, the milk powders that um, we just don't have the milk for um, in this country, we are structurally short of butterfat. So those kind of products, those more commodity-based products we'll be importing and trying to make value-added products to sell either here or overseas. Well, that's a big shift because I have seen that things like, uh, and I'm not sure if you can speak to this, full-fat milk and butter actually have gone up in terms of uh, people eating them. Yes, yeah, there's been good demand. I mean, we've we've had those conversations about whether fat is as bad as you as we used to think, um, maybe in the 70s and 80s. And people are really coming back to some of these um, traditional staple products for the taste and for the way they perform in their cooking and other applications. So we, we do have good demand for these products, but we just don't have as much of them produced as we'd like. Is this happening overseas as well? Look, I think it's fair to say that growing milk is hard overseas. In most regions, New Zealand, Europe, US is really the only uh, region that's growing, and that's only in some areas. But on the flip side, the demand story is pretty strong everywhere. And particularly during the, the last couple of years of COVID, people have really gone back to traditional staple products. And so dairy products have done really well.
Now, you're here in Hobart for the Australian Dairy Conference, and I know you're speaking about the future, looking 10 years in advance. What what are you projecting for, like, 10 years' time for the dairy industry? Well, it's, it's a mugs game, isn't it, to try and forecast the future? But what we'll be presenting to the Australian Dairy Conference is a few scenarios for what the future of the industry might look like in terms of how much milk we'll be producing and what we'll be producing in terms of our product mix and what that might mean for the way that milk's valued and the way that supply chains form in the future. So we're putting a few ideas out there about um, future and uh, it'll be a good discussion piece, I think. What sort of things are we talking about? Is it going to change in the way we produce or are we going to have to choose what we really want in terms of what the consumer wants out of their milk? Absolutely. I mean, with a, if we have... Any more diminishing milk supply, the big concern is that a a large processor might not continue to to manufacture in this country. And then we might have a few options in terms of our product mix taken away, potentially. Um, So what we're really talking about is what supply chains will look like, how will buyers secure milk in the future. And what we're seeing already is there's a whole lot of fragmentation, like retailers like Coles reaching right back to the farm um, and paying farmers direct and having those direct relationships to, to make those supplies secure. So we're going to see, I think, more of that. And to sustain that, we're going to have to have high value products at the other end of the supply chain for consumers. And farmers already are being offered incentives as well as the milk prices, aren't they? So maybe if if it keeps going down, more incentives for farmers. It's going to cost to processors more and more, maybe. Yeah, look, it's 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 quite a tough time for processors. Um, they're kind of squeezed between two very large retailers, um, a very competitive global market and um, and fairly high milk prices at the other end. So their incentives are really to maximise every litre of milk and make the highest value product that they can. Um, the other thing that you're, as uh, being a board member of Australian Dairy Conference, you're looking at the big question about how to grow that milk production. You're looking at how to get farmers back in or new farmers or expansion? Yeah, yeah look, we're really wanting to, to start a discussion about what needs to change for, for us to get perhaps new farmers uh, into the industry. So, you know, backing young people that want to have a go but just can't overcome that big capital hurdle of buying into a farm, share farming agreements, a whole lot of new business models are going to be what's required to actually get people into the industry. And then how can we incentivise people perhaps at the other end of their careers to maybe give you know, good terms of vendor finance to get young people in? How do we change our farming system so that we can maybe replace some of that labour with with technology. So there's a whole lot of ways where we're sort of wanting to talk about, should we turn this ship around and how do we do it? Yes, the only thing certain in this world is change, isn't it? Dairy analyst with Fresh Agenda, Joe Bills, talking there to Fiona Breen about the future of the Australian dairy industry and talking at the National Dairy Conference in Hobart. She's one of the keynote speakers. Now, in the second half of today's country hour, around about 15 minutes from now, we'll take you back to the conference and Meg Powell with some more special guests Coming up on the Country Hour, the big Tasmanian wool sale this week and 700 sheep stolen from a rural property. This week on Landline, devastation in WA's Kimberley region, rebuilding in central New South Wales and the upside of flooding, revived wetlands for birds. It feels very special, I think, when you come into these places and... You know, we have sort of between 30 and 50,000 breeding pairs in here. You're maybe the only person that these birds have seen so far. 
That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. To the wool market now and thousands of bales of some of the best Tasmanian wool were the stars of the show at the wool auctions this week in Melbourne. Alastair Calvert, Director of Wool Solutions, says overall it was a good three-day sale and the Europeans were very active. This week was the designated Tasmanian feature sale for um, uh, wool sales, sales in Melbourne, the traditional sale that used to be held in Tasmania some years ago. So the sales were held over three days, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of the week, and um, approximately 5,700 or nearly 6,000 bars of Tasmanian wool went under the hammer. And how did they go? The market started on Tuesday uh, with with a little bit of a correction after a solid rise we had last week in the market. So there was a little bit of pullback, mainly on the I guess the the Chinese type. So the you know not the poorer testing types, I suppose you might say that um, that didn't see the European market. So they they basically basically corrected by about 20 or 30 cents. And then uh, on Wednesday, we saw the market stabilise and then Thursday again finish, um, you know, finish basically unchanged. So it was good. Okay. Now some of the highlights for Tasmania? The quality of the clip was very, very good. And that was rewarded very well uh, by the European market particularly. So there was strong competition from all of the major European top makers and processors. We saw a top price on for the week received on Tuesday by Alan and Carol Phillips from Glenn Stewart with uh, 5,700 cents for a 13.6 micron bale, which was a great result. And then we saw a number of lines sell, you know, in excess of 3,000 cents a kilo. So that was very, very good. The overall averages were, uh, I guess, up on last year, I think. And, um, yeah, the quality of the clip was was um, well recognised by the buyers. And basically in this, you know, the wet season that we've had on the mainland particularly, they were looking for this, you know, the quality out of Tasmania particularly this week. And uh, the fine wool there that you mentioned, um, that will end up in Europe somewhere? Yeah, a, a large proportion of it will, Tony. Yeah, just because of the nature of, I guess, the clip in Tasmania, it has a lot of a lot of uh, positive attributes. The fact is that it's not too long, colours great, low VM, good staple strength, all of the things that the Europeans like for the sort of higher end. We're renowned for producing that sort of quality. So absolutely, a large proportion of the clip will end up that way. Yeah, obviously, China's still an important customer for us um, and take some of the sort of, I guess, the next the next lower level. But no, Europe particularly active this week. Now, the start of the year, um, it's a couple of weeks now. How's it looking? Oh, well, it's caught us all by a little bit of uh, a surprise, to be honest. It's been quite good since Christmas, since we came back from the break, and even for the couple of weeks uh, prior to Christmas, since basically since COVID, um, the COVID policy in China was relaxed. So I would say it's, 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 we're quietly optimistic. The market is heading in the right direction. It's it's pretty good. I mean, um, you know, we were looking, it was looking pretty tough there sort of in the early spring of uh, 2022 and um, it's, it's sort of turned a corner now and starting to look a little bit better. And yeah, so we remain sort of cautiously optimistic that we're going to have a reasonable year this year for prices. You mentioned uh, Alan and Carol Phillips from the Glen Stewart property at Deddington and that's almost, uh, almost changed hands now and... Uh, can you can you sort of see the uh, the Phillips not being there in the wool market? 
they're going through their, a, a process and um, I'm sure whichever way that process goes, I'm sure that the the uh, the quality of the clip will remain and um, whether it be by new owner or not. But, um, yeah, no, look, there's no doubt that, I, I mean, I would say that it's it's as good a quality, super fine, ultra fine wool clip you'll find anywhere in the country and therefore anywhere in the world. So, um We've been blessed to have uh, the Phillips family in the state, you know, running the property for the last 20-plus years, and they've done a hell of a lot for um, the promotion and, uh, yeah, the promotion of the Tasmanian Wool Clip for sure. That's Director of Wool Solutions, Alastair Calvert, with details of the Tasmanian Wool Sales this week in Melbourne, pleased with the overall result of the wool auction. And he did mention there Alan Phillips. I did manage to catch up with one of the successful Tasmanian wool producers at the sale, Alan Phillips from the Deddington property, Glenn Stewart. And it was a great finale to a long career in the wool industry for the Phillips family, who are in the final stages of selling their renowned property. Alan Phillips went out with a bang after a great return from a bale of fine wool at the sale. So you sold unbelievably well. It made 5700 so we were very pleased. Do you know who purchased it? Uh, I think it was Dine and Wool, I believe. I think uh, I spoke to Robbie Kelvin, who was um, the broker for us, and he said there was keen competition on the bale. I think um, Laura Piana might have pushed him up to that level with the last two bidders. And where will that wool end up, do you think? Well, I'm thinking in uh, Europe somewhere, but I couldn't tell you exactly. What about um, the possibility that um, the king might be wearing a suit made of it? Well, well, it was a very fine bale of wool, so I think it was 13.6 microns, so... um, It'll certainly go into uh, a high-quality end of the market, I think. Alan, how do you get um, the quality of that wool? How do you get to that finished product on farm? Uh, So this particular bale was off some two-year-old weathers and it it was quite a good year for growing last year and and at that two-year-old level, the wool still, you know, tests very fine. I think we um, used the Ofta machine to uh, measure them, so we um, helped get that real fine edge to the bale. No, basically just a good season and, um, you know, the breeding of the sheep and, uh, no, it, it came off very well. Yeah, a lot of farmers were um, complaining about the amount of rain, but did that benefit uh, where you are? Uh, actually, well, it's funny, it was a little bit dry in the first, in the autumn period, but, um, you yeah, know, certainly the winter and spring was uh, very wet. Oh, well, they run in the bush, the weathers, and um, it actually was getting a little bit tight out there towards the end, but it obviously didn't affect the... Um, the wool quality, um, but it certainly gave us a big boost in uh, coming into spring anyhow. And with a bale like that, um, what does it mean to to your business and, and how proud of you are to produce something like that? Oh, look, you're always very pleased when um, you get good competition at the sales like that and it actually materialises into um, a good financial price. Um, it, it just gives you the confidence that w- what you're growing and putting in front of them is, you know, what the market wants and um, it, it just keeps you, gives you the encouragement to keep on trying to do that. And you've been uh, a wool farmer for a long time. How did you know? What was the situation when you realised, hello, I've got a good one here? Oh, g- generally, you know, if, if the sheep are looking well and healthy coming into the shearing shed and um, realistically you don't know until the wool crosses the wool table. I do the classing and... Um, it was, uh, yeah, nice and sound and well-grown. And, um, yeah, w- once you start getting a few fleeces in the bin, you g- get a bit of an idea that, um, you know, you've got a good quality product in this particular case. And how does this bale compare to stuff you've done before with uh, with high-quality wool? Uh, it it's probably is probably one of the finest adult sheep bales of um, 
wool that we've produced off the property. We've certainly had hoggets or one-year-old sheep that have been finer. But um, the uh, as for two-year-old and older, it's um, yeah, certainly the finest. And uh, it, well, I, I didn't go to the sale, but I'm, I'm hoping it looked good when they opened it up because it certainly did look quite good in the bins. Yeah, you must have had a smile on your face when you knew what you've got there. Well, I was, like I said, I was happy with the result, but it was it's extra special when it actually materialises into um, you know a good price and financial return. And Alan, I believe um, you've got the firm up for sale. Uh, yes, we have. In actual fact, um, it's um, it's actually we've signed a contract on it just before Christmas, and uh, yeah, hopefully um, it becomes unconditional very soon, and, and hopefully, uh, yeah, we'll be able to explore some other options moving forward. Bit of an end of an era. Uh, well, it's been very good fun, and we're, we've enjoyed every bit of it. There's some wonderful people in the wool industry, and. Um, we certainly won't lose touch with any of them in the years ahead. And anyhow, it's been very good fun, Tony. And how are you going to keep involved with the wool industry? You're not going to walk away from it, surely? No, no, I don't think so. No, my brother still farms here in Victoria, so I'll certainly um, help him out there a little bit. And I'm sure I'll, I'll get to go around and have a look at a few ram sales around the place and uh, wool sales and things like that. And um, you know, I, I reckon I may actually meet more people or talk to more people than I have in recent years. So it might be something to look forward to. And how are you going personally, uh, your health and everything, Alan, at the moment? Uh, yeah, pretty good. And, and that was possibly one of the reasons we decided to make move while uh, we could at the time. That um, it just seemed an opportune time to um, perhaps head, head off in a new direction while things are going along very well. Yes, and we wish them well. Deddington sheep grower Alan Phillips on the great return from the bale of superfine wool. At this week's sales in Melbourne, 5,700 cents. Not bad. Not bad at all. And the new owners of Glen Stewart will keep all the sheep that produce that fine wool, maintaining all those years of great breeding by Alan Phillips and his wife, Carol. A job well done. Well, a central Victorian sheep producer has been left reeling after suffering the worst stock theft in Victorian police memory. It's believed almost 700 ewes and lambs were stolen from a Logan property sometime between October and February. Farm Crime Liaison Officer, leading Senior Constable Dan O'Bree, says the farmer discovered the theft when he was getting sheep in for shearing. Uh, we got a, got a report a week or so ago, Angus, that some sheep had been stolen, 700, um, out near Logan, followed up with the victim, and uh, he last counted them in October when he drenched them. He's in a mob of 1,800, and then has got them in again in January to shear them and discovered that and if he's 1,800, he's 700 down. Um, they were in a 1,200-acre paddock. It was pretty rough. So, um, yeah, it's hard for him to gauge. It would have been hard for him to gauge that uh, the sheep were missing. And is, is this the big challenge with stock theft particularly, that, that just like this case, it can be months before someone realises what's happened and then in terms of investigating, you're, you're right behind the eight ball? Yeah, no, totally. And it's hard. It's hard for a farmer to, you know, just cast his eye across the paddock and, yeah, and then by the time you do a proper count, get him in the yards, and, and you do do a proper count, and you realise that uh, the numbers are down. Sometimes there's a, a bit of a tendency not to worry about it. Maybe that they're in with the neighbours, or they've got into another paddock, and then yeah, by the time the farmer realises that they're not dead and, and, and they're not in the neighbours and they're not with another mob, they sort of think it's too late and there's nothing we can do about it, and they don't report it. 700 head, I think, close to 200 merino ewes and close to 500 white Suffolk cross lambs. That's certainly the biggest stock theft I've ever heard of. Have you ever come across anything on this scale before? No, mate, this is the biggest one we've heard of. We've heard of, you know, 
hundreds and two hundreds and um, but this is this is massive yeah has the farmer talked a total value of what they may have been worth oh we're looking somewhere around one hundred and forty thousand that's a lot of money it is yeah I mean if you took that out of anyone's livelihood over a twelve month period it'd be pretty devastating how's the farmer coping he's upset obviously um, he's questioning you know where they could be has he done anything wrong uh, you know, we've checked fences we've checked paddocks you know if they had got out the neighbors would um, would have told him there's that many uh, if they were dead in the paddock you know you'd see them yeah so no he's as you can understand he's, he's a little bit upset about yeah, I reckon you would be upset about that. Uh, that was Farm Crime Liaison Officer Leading Senior Constable Dan O'Brien speaking with Angus Verley about uh, the loss of 700 ewes and lambs which were stolen from a Logan property in Victoria sometime between October and February. Makes you wonder how they did it and where the sheep ended up. Quite amazing. Look, we'll take you to the National Dairy Conference in just a moment. We'll do the weather from that conference and uh, plenty of great things coming up as well as Richard Bailey a little bit later in the program with the Livestock Markets. First up, the news headlines with Will Murray. G'day, Tony. The Reserve Bank's governor has criticised Australian banks for not passing on interest rate hikes to people with savings accounts. At a parliamentary committee hearing today, the RBA's Philip Lowe said the banks were very quick to pass on loan interest rates, but most of them very slow to pass on deposit rates. The consumer watchdog is now investigating bank deposit rates. Officials say the number of people killed in the earthquakes that devastated parts of southern Turkey and northern Syria is continuing to rise as the chances of finding more survivors dwindles. The quakes struck 11 days ago, killing more than 42,000 people. A team of Australian emergency responders will travel to New Zealand to help local crews with the clean-up from Cyclone Gabriel. Entire towns have been cut off, with heavy rain causing flooding in the north. 25 officers from the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, as well as disaster experts from interstate, will be deployed over the weekend. Michael Della Fontana will be back with a full bulletin at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Will. Now to the weather forecast. Let's take you to the National Dairy Conference at Rest Point, where Meg Powell has ace forecaster Luke Johnston. Oh, hello, Tony. Uh, Luke, you better say hi. Hi, Tony. How are you going? <laughs> yeah, going well, Luke. And uh, all under control at Rest Point. How's it looking? Oh, great. Actually, the sun has just come out again, which is great. We're right in the heart of the action down here. And I've got Luke Johnston here in the flesh yeah, to talk hiding, about hiding the weather. Yeah, hiding in the shade. Poor hiding. Meg's been standing right in the sun and they've given me the banner to stand in front of. It's been quite a warm one so far. Grove's the warmest uh, recorded temperature so far today at just under 34 degrees. But we've seen areas on Flinders Island, Hobart Airport and Campania all around 33 degrees today. So a bit of a hot one. There was a, a few showers around uh, yesterday which resulted in three or four millimetres about the west and one or two millimetres uh, elsewhere about the south and southeast, but not talking significant totals. For the remainder of today, uh, we might see some afternoon thunderstorms developing. In fact, we've already had some thunderstorms about the north coast and off the east coast this morning, but in the afternoon we might start to see them uh, forming inland, not expecting them to produce much in the way of rainfall. It's uh, going to be an interesting one for the fireys this afternoon because uh, fire dangers are quite elevated uh, today in particular, and it's, it's likely, to, likely we'll see some of the most significant fire weather we've seen so far this, uh, this season. A cool change later this afternoon or evening, uh, 
arriving sooner into the west and then eventually coming over the southeast and up the east coast later tonight. A cold front will bring our next chance of reasonable rainfall tomorrow with showers developing about the west in the morning, extending over the southeast and east in the afternoon and evening with the possibility of thunderstorms tomorrow as well. But uh, tomorrow's thunderstorms provide some rainfall at least. In terms of rainfall tomorrow, we're looking at 10 to 20 millimetres into the southwest, 5 to 15 millimetres into the northwest, although fine about the northwest coast, 1 to 3 millimetres about the east, uh, southeast and uh, 3 to 20 millimetres about the middle part of the east coast, depending on some afternoon thunderstorms. That's uh, pretty much it. That doesn't look like a great deal of rainfall coming uh, after tomorrow uh, into the remainder of next week. Great. Any warnings, Luke? Warnings today, yeah, we got a strong wind warning just for the southeast coast today, and that extends or moves rather to the north and northeast uh, between Stanley and St Helens Point tomorrow. And what about coastal waters? All right, today we've got uh, fairly hot north to northeasterly winds in a range of 10 to 20 knots, uh, tending west to southwesterly in the west this morning and then extending to the north and south in the later afternoon and then up the east coast in the evening. Tomorrow, northeast to southeasterly, 5 to 10 knots about the east, and northwest to southwesterly, 10 to 20 knots elsewhere, reaching 30 knots at the north uh, during the afternoon and evening. In terms of swell, we've got a west to southwesterly coming on Tasmania around uh, 2 metres today, increasing 2 to 3 metres tomorrow, through Bass Strait today and tomorrow a, north, uh, a westerly uh, below one metre and the east coast has a fairly standard southerly under one metre with a developing northeasterly one to one and a half metres. And uh, finally our wave rider boys at Capes are on the west coast is a west-south-westerly uh, 2.2 2, 2 metres and up the east coast is southerly just below one metre. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for coming out here and roasting in the sun with yeah, us. Yes, I'm going to move back into the shade now, actually. You uh, could go catch some dairy chat inside yeah. if you want. I know you're a big fan. Yeah, I'm going to go back into the big room where ev- everyone is and lots of air conditioning and much nicer than out here in the full cool. sun. I feel sorry for you, Meg. I really do. Look, the sacrifices we make for the job, and I'll get you to hand the microphone over to our next guest. We're going to meet someone else who's been floating around this conference. It's Nina von Kaiserlink. Great last name. Uh, last name, sorry, and you're a professor from the University of British Columbia. Nina, you've got a pretty dense CV over here that um, I'm not going to read out because it's going to take years. Um, tell me, but tell me about where you grew up. So I grew up in the heart of agriculture. Uh, my dad was a cattle rancher. Uh, it was our farm was a thousand acres. We had 250. I think you. Could, I don't know if they're called the beef industry or suckler cows and a backgrounding feedlot. I spent uh, over 10 years showing cattle. I also showed horses um, and just, I was a farm kid. And then at one point I decided, my dad always said, you know, we were three girls at home that we had to go to the university or some other place we had to get some piece of paper (laughs) because we needed to be able to be independent because who knows what happens. And I ended up going to university. I thought I was going to be a vet. I actually never applied to vet school. I ended up doing a bachelor at the University of British Columbia. I went to Alberta. I learned, I did beef. And a professor offered me $800, $600 a month to do a master's. And that meant that I didn't have to borrow money. And so that's how I fell into research. Great. And then I went back to UBC and I did a PhD. Gosh, where's that professor now? I wouldn't mind $800 yeah. <laughs> a month to research. Pretty good. Now, so you've ended up in research uh, around perceptions in the dairy industry. That's part of it anyway. Tell me a bit more about that. So I think maybe I'll just back up a half a step. I actually spent seven years in business after finishing my PhD, and I was working for a large feed manufacturing company on figuring out how to make cows produce more milk, chickens grow faster, hens lay more eggs. You know, everything was about efficiency. 
My last name being von Kaiserlink, I have this European background. I'd gone to Europe, and what was really hit me was that, especially in Europe, people were starting to ask questions about the lives led by the food that they were, the animals that they were eating. And I came back to Canada and realized that, you know, there's, there's so much great work being done on the production efficiency side, but we needed to sort of take a step back and figure out how do we show that these animals, you know, will actually ask the question, are they having a good life? And so that's how we got into research. I started out in feeding behavior and nutrition because my background was also in nutrition. I did a, what's called a, a year of extra training in ethics and animal welfare, and then my journey began. About 10 years after hitting the university as an academic, I realized that in animal welfare, it's not just about the animals. It's also about the people that are interacting with the animals and values. And that's how I got into perceptions and looking at public attitudes, farmer attitudes, uh, looking at barriers to adoption. You know, we can have the best thing in the world. I think you guys are using pain mitigation for dehorning. We actually did a lot of that work on dehorning, but we also did work on what does the public think about that? And then looking at barriers to adoption. How do I get a farmer who's been resistant to now engage in that practice? So what are, what are these big issues and is there a perception issue in the dairy industry? So I think the word perception, I think the one that I would use, rather use is sort of what are the attitudes. The general public is, wants to trust farmers. They don't want to feel guilty about what they eat. Animal agriculture has spent an awful lot of time worrying about what animal rights people think. You know, the sort of the abolitionist approach. What animal agriculture has not done a good job is what are the values of the 85% of the people, the thoughtful people walking down the street who want to buy animal products as part of their daily, you know, grocery cart, that, you know, what are their values? And then... The challenge is, is that what happens with these people who normally trust that we're doing the right thing, and then they see some undercover video, and I'm just going to, because we're in Australia, <laughs> all of a sudden see that, you know, these extra calves are either euthanized on farm, they're healthy, but they're worthless, so farmers have, and have euthanized them on farm. And let me tell you, every farmer that I talk to hates doing it, but they feel caught in this box that they don't know what to do or they send them to the abattoir between five and 30 days. The average thoughtful person in the street can't get behind that. I'm gonna pause you yep. right there because we've actually got a couple of farmers here from Western Australia. Victoria, from Western, Western Victoria, Victoria yeah. pardon me, um, who have come across this issue themselves. Firstly, introduce yourselves. Yeah, so my name's Lucy Collins, um, yep. I'm Matt Lennon, so we farm at yeah, terrain in Western Victoria, not Western Australia. Um, we build 700 cows in an autumn-based halving system over there. So what we were talking about before was the, the slaughter of bobby calves. It, is that a situation you... Well, obviously that's a situation you've come up with. Lucy, you've got a background as a vet... How do you deal with this issue? Yeah, I think it's challenging um, for the whole industry. It's um, uh, certainly um, different farms have had to create different um, approaches to it, depending on you know their location and, and their own farming ethos as well. Um, I don't 
know at the moment whether there is a one-size-fits-all approach to it for us, but um, certainly I think across the industry at the moment and, and what we've heard this week um, from a lot of farmers is that we're all just trying to tackle it in our own way and, and really kind of rise to the, the challenge. So one of, one of the things that you've adopted on your farm is sexed semen. Matt, I might get you to explain a little bit for our audiences. What is that? So sexed semen uh, in the dairy world essentially is semen that um, has gone through sexing machines to take all the male semen out of that straw um, and essentially you end up with a 90% chance of getting a female female calf. So we use a lot of sex semen over our, over our better cows and our herd um, in combination with uh, beef semen as well on the lower end um, for a couple of different reasons. I guess one, to produce um, better progeny, better heifer progeny for our um, next generation. Um, two, to produce extra heifers for the export market that we have in our part of the world. Um, and three, I guess from a beef point of view, um, to try and create another value chain for our excess calves, whether that's um, us keeping them on farm and rearing them through um, to feedlot weight or them going on to another farm to get grown out into a supply chain um, for that market. Is there a cost to this? You've got to keep a few extra calves on farm. Yeah, there's definitely a cost where um, you've got to be in a position, and that's probably the tricky thing at the moment, is that you've got to be in a position to have everything set up properly. That's calf rearing facilities, that's extra land to run them beef animals and or extra heifer animals, depending on where you want to go. So that's where, I guess, the dairy industry at the moment in Australia is probably at a bit of a crossroads with it because not everyone is set up in that way or not everyone can afford to buy extra land or lease land to do it. So that's a bit of a challenge, I guess. We're lucky we do have some of the land. Um, but we also face a bit of a challenge with... Um, obviously, beef markets have retracted a bit at the moment. Input costs have risen. So um, there's certainly some challenges. I think it's certainly the way forward, but there's certainly some challenges with that, with that value chain, I guess. Meaning market the market correct yeah nina just quickly back to you is that something you've been that more farmers are doing is that something you've researched yeah so where i've gotten involved so this idea of using sex semen and beef so let's say on the top 40 percent of the herd to get the, the the great cows that will become the future milk cows and then using things like angus genetics on the, the rest of the herd to go into the beef supply chain there's, where I've come involved now is looking at trying to make sure that the market is going to work on a continued basis. So there's a lot of players in the, um, there's the meat packers, there's the feed lotters, there's the milk processors, uh, there's the retail market. Having conversations with them because what you need is you need a market at the end that can take these calves. And you need every one of those players to be on board. And so this is what we call participatory framework analysis. And I've been involved in with Dairy Australia. And I have a PhD student, uh, Sarah Bolton, who we've done pilot work, a study in New South Wales that has been really, really fruitful. It's about conversations and it's about building relationships. How do you communicate it to the public? It's a pretty scientific process and a, a lot of people are aware of, Bob, you know, at some point in history we all suddenly realise where veal came from, but they might not understand this sex semen process or things like that. How do you communicate that? So I'm a researcher. I do research to ask those questions. And so 
what you the, what agriculture's ch- been challenged with is that they've used the format we just need to educate the public. My dad, I just need to go to Vancouver, Nina, go to Vancouver and convince them that everything I do is fine. We got to get over it. We are never going to educate the public. Lucy's fasting as a parent to say something here. Um, exactly. Back off um, what Nina's just been speaking about. It's, it's engagement. It's such a, a powerful and important part of um, our future as farmers. Um, and it's got to come from everyone. Um, I think particularly around um, bobby calves and animal care more broadly on farms. Um, you know, as a vet and, and a farmer, it's, um, I think, just so important that we're uh, engaging with our consumers and our, and our communities um, around things that we know are common values. It's, it's important to us that our animals are, are cared for and we know it's important to our consumers that they can trust and understand that. Um, we certainly haven't always got it all um, perfect all the time. I don't know any farmer that does and every industry has their own challenges, but that engagement piece is really important for us. Um, I've been really fortunate to be part of the Dairy Australia Ambassador Program this year um, and have had some wonderful opportunities to do exactly that. Lucy, Matt, Nina, thank you for coming on the Country Hour today live from Rest Point. Tony, we better get back to you in the studio. Thank you very much to Meg Powell and all the special guests there. And Meg did catch up with another special guest as well. Yeah, my name's Ollie Laleve. I'm the founder of Humans of Agriculture and we're based out of Geelong in Victoria. Ollie, what's your background in agriculture? I, th- I think I've got quite a varied background in agriculture. I-, I actually grew up in the city, and so I was a Sydney boy and fell in love with farming from a young age. So I, I left school, began working on cattle, sheep and cropping places along the east coast in different areas, and then uh, went, went and studied at Marcus Oldham College down in Geelong, and then I guess that kind of kick-started my career in agribusiness, and so worked in a bunch of different industries from fresh produce through to ag tech, through to corporate consulting, worked at Auctions Plus, the, the online marketplace for agriculture, and today doing Humans of Agriculture full-time. Where did Humans of Agriculture start for you, and what is that? So I think for me, Humans of Agriculture is probably, it's one of those things which has been bubbling away in the background, and for, for me, like being that city kid that would spend their holidays at, their, at my uncle's farm in Victoria, I'd come back and people really didn't have an understanding of what agriculture was, so I think... This journey actually probably started as, um, as a kid and followed me through my teenage years, but it really kind of came to a head in 2019. We, I was over in South Africa and I ha- had the chance to, I guess, just get a bit of perspective in terms of what happens in other parts of the world. And I think what's incredibly special about agriculture, it's one industry which people need every single day. It's an industry which, um, whether you're the most affluent people in society or the poorest, generally you have some association and quite associate quite close association to agriculture and so what I wanted to do I wanted to try and shift the stigma of who are these people involved in agriculture what's the role of agriculture today and how can it be better and different into the future. That podcast focuses on stories individual stories and just tells their life and their job. You don't have a background in journalism how was it learning to get people to open up to you like that? Yes, I definitely don't have a background in journalism. Um, I'm probably more closely to being a marketer, I guess, and it's something we we constantly grapple with. We're not journalists, but we are journalists. We're not marketers, but we're we're marketers. But I think um, the piece around getting people to open up, like all of the conversations and people I'm chatting to, I have a genuine curiosity about them. And for me, it was all about going on a journey for myself to understand more about what's the role of agriculture today and what does it look like today and how can that be better in the future and how do we understand that through the people who are involved in it every day. For me, 
yeah, I guess getting people to open up. I, I think if you lean in and come from an angle of curiosity and eager to learn and understand more about people, I don't think any journalism degree or background is going to teach you that. I think that's um, innately human. And I think when it comes to storytelling, like our Indigenous Australians have used storytelling for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations, and s storytelling is something which um, is built on empathy and connection. And I think in agriculture, that's a huge opportunity for us in, in terms of how we talk about what we do and why we do it, because we've got so many passionate people in our sector. Do you feel like you've learned anything along the way? Oh, I'd say what haven't I learned? I think it's been absolutely incredible. And, and in every conversation that I'm having with someone, there's something I'm really keen to learn about. If it's a CEO, I might be looking to understand a little bit more about their journey and some of the challenges that they've had. If it's someone on farm, it's like, well, where's that passion come from? And what, what's driving them to keep turning up? And how are people facing adversity and then overcoming adversity and, and looking at the future kind of optimistically? So I think, oh, yeah, what I've learned would be so much. And I think the different stories and the people I've chatted to in all facets of my life, little things come up and I'm like, wow, that's what that person was talking about or that's a situation where this person kind of experienced something similar. And what do you hope to, you've sort of answered this already, but what do you hope to achieve by sharing people's stories? So I think there's probably three things that we're really trying to address uh, with, with what we're doing in Humans of Agriculture. The first being around playing a role in reconnecting the broader community and society back into the importance of agriculture. I think in Australia we're seeing a growing disconnect of what happens, but people are still needing to eat. And so I think um, the first point is, how do we make agriculture relatable to people every single day? The second is a really key part of what we're doing, and it's empowering people with their stories. So how do we help create the platform, whether it's video, podcast, or a written story that matches that person and gives them the best opportunity to showcase their story and who they are and what they do. And then the third point is looking at how we can showcase careers in agriculture to people who may not actually see themselves as having an opportunity in agriculture. And I think the way the sector's going now with advancements in technology, with, yeah, I guess, increasing challenges and connectedness of supply chains, um, the role of health and nutrition, and then you look at everything else that comes with the growing world population, what the future looks like in terms of low emissions. Agriculture's front and centre in all of these things. And it, so we need some incredible people to actually step into our sector, and we also then need to keep them in our sector as well. And Ollie, what's a, what's a man from Geelong doing in a place like this here in Hobart? Yeah, well, it's definitely worse places to be in the world. No, we, we're down here for the Australian Dairy Conference, and so I'm super excited. We're Humans of Agriculture. We're hosting the, the, the last session, sponsored by the Gardner Foundation, and uh, we, we've got Lucy Collins, Stephen Fisher, and the one and only Ned Brockman. So I think... Um, it's absolutely incredible to, to see what each of those different people have done and our session that we're, we're chatting about is focusing on the art of the possible and I think that's something in, in agriculture if we look at the future with hope and optimism and lean on these people and their stories I think we, we can finish the conference on a real high. Are you nervous? It's a bit different to holding a mic in just two people. Yeah, I am. And I think I was chatting to a friend a while ago who spends a lot of time chatting and I think probably that nervousness shows that you kind of care about it and want to do a good job. So I'm nervous, but not in the sense of, I guess, having not done something like this before. I think we're really just going to have three conversations on the stage and as long as I'm inv as invested in that person as I can, I think we will have a pretty awesome session. 
Great. Thank you, Ollie Laleef. Thanks, Meg. Yeah, that's Ollie Laleef, founder of Humans in Agriculture and one of the final speakers today at the National Dairy Conference in Hobart. And he was talking there to Meg Powell. Coming up in just a moment, Richard Bailey with all the livestock information for you. Ciao, amici. Is Festa Italia a part of your weekend plans? If you can't make it to the heart of Italian culture in Hobart on Sunday, come join me on the wireless for a live broadcast from Festa Italia, a festival celebrating all things Italian culture, music and food in North Hobart and on air this Sunday from 10 till 12. I'll bring the celebration from the street onto your radio. Sundays. That's Amore. With Lucy Cutting. ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And it's time now on a Friday afternoon to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. Going well. Getting hot. Yes, yes, going to be uh, going to be a hot day today. How was it at Parani yesterday? It wasn't as hot as, but like temperature wise, so it was not as bad as what we thought we might have been up for. Was cloud cover, so it was pretty good. Um, Eighteen hundred and thirty-one store cattle, so a good store sale uh, coming up to the weaner sales. Um, I suppose to put this in context, before the sale, most of us were sort of wondering. We knew it'd be cheaper. We were wondering how much cheaper. Uh, you know, you've got to remember that our sale in January was very strong. And so we knew it would be cheaper, and it was cheaper. The very best cattle were probably owning 150 to $200 a head cheaper, and then some of the others up to 200 to $300 cheaper. I think that generally speaking, it was about where people, most people thought it should be, or most people thought it could be. So in that sort of bracket, just a few prices. The heaviest of the yearling steers, 1680 to 2200 uh, to average five four hundred and ten cents a kilo, and the next run down four fifteen forty to seventeen forty to average four thirty cents. Yearling heifers, not as many of these twelve sixty to seventeen twenty to average three forty cents a kilo. Then we got into the weaners, the better steer weaners twelve eighty to sixteen twenty four hundred and twenty cents a kilo. Uh, middle range fourteen hundred to sixteen fifty to average four eighty cents a kilo, and then the lighter a thousand and eighty to 13.80 or 500 cents. Then we got over to the heifers, the best of the weaner heifers, 1,300 to 14.60 to average 3.50 cents a kilo, middle range 9.80 to 1,200 to average 3.55, and then lighter 800 to $1,120 a head or 400 cents a kilo. So uh, remembering that, you know, and there were people said, oh, it's a lot cheaper than last year. Well, of course, it was a lot cheaper than last year. Last year, we're, we're at the stage of the year, we are basically off the planet. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I suppose for some vendors it may be disappointing. I think it was probably about where most agents were hoping it would sit, Tony. So we now start into the wiener sales starting next Thursday. Um, AWN start up next Thursday, and then we have a break the following week, and then we have four wiener sales in a row. Probably somewhere between twelve and 15,000 cattle to be sold, so interesting times ahead. But I reckon with those better lines of wiener cattle, I reckon um, there'll be a fair bit of interest in those. Just um, we now, with the wiener sales, we now revert to a 12 o'clock start. We, we, all our other start, store sales are 11 o'clock. 12 o'clock start, Piranha, next Thursday, kick off. See where we go from there. Okay, what's been happening over the water with cattle? 
Um, just generally, odd places a little bit cheaper in places, but generally speaking, it's sort of levelled. Um, probably over the last month or six weeks, it's sort of been on a downward trend. Certainly some of the overhooks prices uh, here and over there have come back significantly over the last month. It'll be interesting to see, obviously, from now on, there's quite a big cow kill goes on. I mean, the word is that they're just struggling to, to, to sell their better types of cattle, uh, better types of beef overseas. So, you know, obviously that's got to improve for everything else to improve. But there will be a bit of a numbers game. And I think I said last week, a bit will depend on how good the autumn is. Not so much here, but in Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland, of course. Okay. But just generally speaking, things were were probably on a par to the previous week in most sales. Now, lamb and sheep, what's happening there? Okay, in the lamb markets, early in the week it was a bit cheaper, uh, Bendigo, Ballarat and Hamilton. But then yesterday, Wagga, it improved 5 to $10 a head. So it ended up the week probably not a lot different to where we were the pre- pre- previous week. Once again, very big difference between the good quality lambs and the not so good quality or the lighter lambs. Anything over 24 kilos that's really good quality is still making around $8 or $7.80 to $8.20 a kilo, which is meaning your really heavy lambs are getting to $300 a head, but a lot of your other heavy lambs anywhere from $220 to $270 a head. And then your trade lambs sort of $190 to $220 in that sort of bracket, providing they are mainly shorn and in good quality. Then you get into your others and you're very quickly down to six fifty, seven hundred cents a kilo and in places less. Some of the quite a few of these still going back to the paddock. So we've said this for some weeks now. It's just a matter of there will be a heap of finished lambs come to the market sometime soon. It's a matter of when and whether or not the, the processing sector can handle them all. There's a, it's still, it's, you know, we're, we're in the middle of February and it's um, it's still holding up very well. The one that's not holding up so well is the mutton job. Most mutton mark back again this week. There are a lot of sheep selling between 220 and 350 cents a kilo. Wide range, I know. It depended on markets. A couple of markets were averaging around that 280, 300 cents a kilo, but then there were markets earlier in the week that were averaging more like 230, 240, 250 cents a kilo. So that's meaning that there aren't many sheep making over $100 a head over there. And a lot of sheep... And we're seeing this here, a lot of sheep selling between sort of 50 and $80 a head, remembering that probably this time last year they were making 130 or 40 or $50 a head. Yeah, so big, big difference. Bit of, bit of a difference, yes. Um, I suppose we're reasonably fortunate that we've still got, a lot of people still got some dry feed around. They can probably carry some sheep through if that's their option. But interesting times, and uh, we'll see where it takes us over the next few weeks. Okay, Richard, you have a great weekend. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey will be back with us next Wednesday on the Country Hour to check the latest uh, of the Parana sale. Just before we go, the TFGA, Tasmanian Farmers and Grazies Association, has welcomed today's announcement by the state government to invest in Tasmania's biosecurity by recruiting five new biosecurity inspectors. TFGA says by bolstering our biosecurity system, it helps ensure the safety and integrity of the state's farming produce. So five new biosecurity inspectors to be employed for Biosecurity Tasmania. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and our ABC Rural Facebook page. That's our country hour for this week. Trust you have a happy and safe weekend and we'll catch you after midday Monday.